Growing up in a minister's home, your heroes are missionaries and evangelists. We had a very dear friend named Lou Stewart. Lou uh, was an evangelist, and my dad would have Lou come to our church pretty routinely, at least once every couple years. One of the stories I remember about Lou's experience in coming to a small town, early on there was a lot of spiritual resistance in this little church. He found out from the pastor that there were two sisters in that church that had had a falling out and hadn't spoken to each other in years. The one sister would come in from the front and sit right down here where Carla's sitting, and the other would come in from the back and sit way over there where Alfonso was sitting, and they would never talk. Like they claimed the whole congregation with their hostility. God really began to move, and there was a night where he opened up the platform for people to do business with God, and people began coming. And as Lou was praying, he saw the first sister get up and come down to the front of the, of the auditorium on her knees before God, weeping in conviction. And he looked back, and there was Sister B, weeping, but sitting in her pew. So Lou left the platform and went back to talk to Sister B. And he said to her, do you want to make things right with God? She said, oh, yes, I do. And he said, well, then will you come to the front? And she said, yes, I will. And then pointed at Sister A and said, as soon as she leaves. (laughs) Ah, the blessed communion of the saints. Last week, we talked about the difference between the true church of God, the invisible church, of which all true believers in Christ are a part, and the visible church in all of its various forms. And the visible church is a pretty messed up thing by people's observation. But the invisible church is a glorious thing. It is one right now because of Christ's work and the Holy Spirit's work in birthing and sustaining the church. And the work of the visible church, as Calvin said, is to make the invisible church visible. How are we doing with that? If you think about that particular encounter I talked about or encounters you have seen in the visible church, you might give us a pretty low grade. And I would largely agree with you. One of the things that is important to us at at the journey as one of our core values is community. We don't say that because we think it's a nice notion that people get along. We believe it's one of the true marks of the church. And my passion for us is that as people see us, they would see the true communion of saints. They would say, behold, how they love one another. I believe we see that in this church. It's one of the things that people talk about and experience, but we can never take that for granted. If you're visiting with us, we're working through the Apostles' Creed as an opportunity to explore and understand the irreducible minimum of the Christian faith. Indeed, the creed itself is the gospel that we were created by God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. We we believe in that creator. We also believe in his son Jesus, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Why did he become man? So that he could suffer under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, descended to the dead. He wasn't defeated by death. On the third day, he rose again, fully exalted. He's ascended to the Father. Seated at the right hand, given full authority, and there's a promise that someday he'll come again. Then we move to the Holy Spirit, who births the church. 
And now we get to this string of short statements. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, a communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Every one of those statements was critical, was dear to the early church because they understood that everything that the Godhead produces through the gospel is lived out through us. We are the kingdom. This is where Christ is honored. This is where the Holy Spirit moves in power. This is where God the Father is sovereign over all. It's the church, and every one of these things is critical and important. And so we really need to understand what this statement, I believe in the communion of saints, is. And so if you take out your notes, you'll see where we're going with this. First thing I'm going to do is a little explanation of the doctrine of the communion of saints by doing a word study with you. Then we're going to look at a picture of the community of saints in Scripture. And trust me, we have a great many passages to choose from. The problem was not finding something to say about the communion of saints. It was finding one thing to say. Pretty much all of the epistles are completely about the communion of saints, And so I've chosen a very specific passage for us to look at that's a snapshot of what that should look like here and in the broad body of Christ. But first, let's look at what the communion of saints is all about. There's two key words here. The first one that we're going to look at is saints. Last week we learned that saints means the holy ones, holy ones of God or the called out ones. In the Bible, the saints are all blood-bought children of God. All true believers are called saints. We have turned that in some traditions into something completely other, something more deserving, the canonical saints of the, of the Catholic Church, people that have lived an exemplary life of faith and in whose name at some point miracles have even occurred so they become a mediator to God. We pray to the saints in some traditions as though they are a higher level of humanity and they have earned that somehow by their piety. If you're Protestant, we have our own idea of saints as being worthy people. The common phrase is, oh, that, that lady, she's a saint. What do we mean by that? We mean they have lived an exemplary life And that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible means by saint. Saintship is nothing that we can earn. It's all about grace. Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 18. So I invite you to turn there with me as one of two texts we're going to be in today. Luke chapter 18. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18 verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... And look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. That says a lot right there. Most of your prayer with God is about yourself. That ought to be a warning to you right there. This is what he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. (laughs) Have you ever been tempted to come to church and see people that are around you and going, wow, I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) I have to admit, I tend to watch some of these Real Wives shows. (laughs) You know why I love those shows? Because I feel so great about me when I watch these people. That's what this guy's doing. Thank you, I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector. 
and I give a tenth of all that I get. Well, good for you. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this was Jesus' conclusion. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. You know who a saint is? A saint is someone who cries out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's that cry for forgiveness. I am made righteous, not by anything I've done. And when I try to earn it, when I try to become a saint, in the end I will always fall short because none of us can make up the sin in our lives. The fact is, there isn't a single human being that has ever earned the title saint. Not one. Mother Teresa didn't earn the title saint. She was a wonderful, godly woman. You know why Mother Teresa was a saint? Because she understood her need for a savior. And that humility worked its way out into a life of service. The service was the result of saintship, just like it is for you and me. So when we talk about the communion of saints, we're talking about blood, bud, let me get that out again. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Blood-bought brethren, (laughs) blood-bought children of God who have come to Christ humbly in need of forgiveness and therefore have left justified, made holy. They are now the holy ones. So that's what we mean by saints, and that's you. All right, then we go on and we look at the word communion. What exactly does communion mean? The Greek word that the creed is invoking is the word koinonia. It appears well over 70 times in the New Testament. There is actually no similar word in the Old Testament. It's only in the context of a grace-saturated community that is birthed in the church, the New Testament church, that we find this word. And koinonia means fellowship, commonality. The English word for community is comprised of two words, common and unity. So when you put those together, the communion of the saints, this is essentially what it means. Say it with me. An intimate connection between all true believers in Jesus. We belong to each other. I belong to you. You belong to me. We have this intimate connection, this commonality because of Jesus in our life. But there's an important thing about this particular statement. So far, when we've looked at the creed, we have been objects of God's work, even the birthing of the church, the one holy apostolic Catholic church, that all is the work of God. But the idea of community is not just something we receive There's a functionality in this. Whereas oneness is a state of being, communion is a function of the church. Trying to come up with an analogy for this. Think of any great uh, invention, a great engine. The inventor of it, the creator of it, made it happen. 
And even though it's many different parts, it's one complete mechanism. In some sense, that's what the oneness of the body is, as we talked about it last week. We're many parts, but we are one. We're a magnificent invention, creation of the Holy Spirit. Our diversity comes together as a single mechanism for the glory of God and for His purposes. But at some point, the mechanism has to function. It's when you turn the switch on and everything begins to work that you have functionality. That's what communion of saints is. Oneness is the unity that God accomplished. Communion of saints is us putting that into action. There's responsibility, there's function on our part that is expected. With that in mind, we're gonna look at a picture of what this communion or community, this fellowship is meant to be. Of the many passages available to us, I've chosen one that I actually read at a wedding yesterday in Pennsylvania. I was actually gonna use a different passage in Hebrews, and as I was reading, I said, this is the one. Colossians chapter three, so turn there with me. Colossians chapter three. We can begin reading at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." There's three things related to the communion of the saints that I'm gonna talk about as we work through this. The first is certain attitudes that are required for community. The second is certain responses that have to happen in community in order to maintain it. And then finally, three priorities for community. But before we get into all those, go back to verse 12, and and this is exactly talking about the communion of the saints. What does he say? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. He's saying, therefore, as God's saints. Paul begins his letter to the church of Colossae, as he commonly does, referring to these Christians as saints. This is a passage that begins with the word, therefore, which means it's the conclusion of something. So if we go back just a couple of verses, we'll see what he's talking about. Verse nine through 11. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is another passage about the oneness or the Catholicity of the church that we talked about last week. So this is flowing directly out of the reality of our oneness as the called out people of God. How we are to have community with one another as saints. And the first thing he points out is a whole list 
of attitudes that we have to put on. He uses this working analogy of uh, a change of who we are as, as, as wardrobe. And early on in the chapter, he says, you need to take off the way you used to be. So let's just talk about why Paul would use that analogy. God changes us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God does a transformation from the inside out. But in some sense, we all still carry on us the baggage of this world. Habits and ways of thinking and ways of responding and attitudes about ourselves and others. These are all things, no matter what the transformation that God has done in our, in our spirits, in our inner being, is still part of us. It's what the Bible refers to as the old man, the old nature. But that's an external thing. The transformation has occurred inside. And so Paul uses this idea of those habits, those ways of thinking, those attitudes, as being external things because the inner man has been renewed. And part of sanctification, growing into this holiness that is ours, is to take off those old ways of thinking and then put on the new things. And so when he says put on these attitudes, He's clearly talking about this being a work that's ours to do. God does the internal transformation, but then he asks us to do the work of confessing and rooting out and putting aside all the old patterns and putting on new healthy attitudes. So the analogy helps us understand this is our job to do. Paul's saying take the initiative to put on these new attitudes. And he lists six attitudes. I want to point out before we go through these that every time Paul in this passage uses you, it's plural. What he's basically saying is you all. I grew up in Pennsylvania Dutch area for a few years and didn't say you and y'all like they do down south. Or what do we say, you and yous guys? Is that what we say up here? <laughs> in Pennsylvania, they'd say you and then youans. And then if there's a whole lot of people, it's yunzes, yunzes. So this is about yunzes. We do this together. Therefore, this transforming process is part of our communion as saints. We do it all together. So let's look at some of these attitudes. Just going to list them quickly. This could be a whole sermon series. We won't do that. Compassion, which means in the Greek, deeply feeling another's pain. Imagine how much we would put aside all the bickering and bitterness that happens in the visible church, inside congregations and between churches on the opposite sides of town. Imagine if we could just claim this idea of compassion, which means entering into a person's experience and understanding what they're going through. Who said, don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes? Who said that? I think it was Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, we need to develop that attitude. We jump to judge so quickly. Compassion means the first thing I'm gonna do is to see if I can understand what's going on in that person. What pain is bringing this about, entering into that compassion. Second, kindness. The Greek idea of kindness is meeting needs the way God meets needs. Not just in the way, but in God's timing. Treat people with kindness, meet the need rather than challenge the sin and correct. You won't find any of that 
idea of being hard on our brothers and sisters. What you see is a pattern of walking with people into transformation, not being corrective and disciplinary. There's a place, a very small place in the church for spiritual discipline in the way that we think of discipline. We confuse discipline for punishment. We punish people. You won't find that anywhere in the communion of the saints. No punishment here. We're a grace-saturated community. We come alongside somebody. We walk them forward into transformation. We try to understand their point of view with compassion, and then we treat them kindly by trying to help meet that need. Third, humility. We're mindful of our own frailty. We're so arrogant about the assumptions we've made about each other that we don't second-guess them. We come into a situation having prejudged it, and then when the situation proves to be different, we can't see it. We see people as unteachable when, in fact, we have jumped to a false conclusion. We need to come at situations humbly. It's why James says, be slow to speak, quick to listen. See? Humility, have an honest opinion of ourselves. How do I have a humble opinion? I don't compare myself to other people like that tax collector over there. I compare myself to the true measure and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Puts me in my spot pretty quickly. Gentleness, gentleness is actually the same word for meekness that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount, on the Beatitudes. I grew up thinking meekness meant weak, submissive. And then I learned that the Greek word for meekness is actually power under authority. I don't mind being that kind of meek. Power under control. God has given all Christians certain spiritual authority. And we have the ability to exercise that authority over the forces of darkness. We have the power to speak into each other's lives and bring about good but we need to use it in a way that it is controlled by the Holy Spirit under God's authority. When we use that authority in the flesh, we do damage. We hurt people rather than help. Instead, we are meek, confident that God has given us something to use for good, but we use it in full submission to God and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Patience. Sufficient time before anger is what patience means in the Greek. Now, down in verse 15, he says, and over all of these virtues, yeah, you put on all these different attitudes, but there's a top coat to everything. (laughs) There's a final layer you have to put on. Put on love. And that's the word agape, a rarely used word in the general language of the day. And the Christians pretty much own that as theirs. God's unconditional love, agapeo. What Paul says about it is that it binds everything together. One more garment to make sure everything stays in place. It holds it all together. It's the glue. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, without love I am nothing. None of these things matter without love. It's the greatest thing of all, and we need it for community. So those attitudes are yours and mine to own for people to see the communion of the saints. Then he goes on, and he talks about two types of responses that circumstances will require of us as we're trying to have these attitudes in dealing with one another. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Both those words are present participle, 
which means that they are ongoing. It's like our present perfect tense. Your translation might actually say bearing with one another and forgiving one another. That's more accurate. These are a recurring response in our relationship with one another. And the first one he talks about is bearing with each other. The Greek word is pretty colorful here. It basically is the same word for suffering. It's to suffer each other. I heard this old man sitting in church, and he was just so tired of all the babies, and he was complaining to his wife about how they cry, and sometimes they drool as they're carrying them by, and they fall on his lapel, and the wife says, oh dear, you know, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to me. And the old man said, yeah, and every time they come, I suffer. (laughs) We're actually called to suffer each other. In any family, in any marriage, in any church, there are things about each of us that frankly drive us crazy. And Paul's saying, deal with it. Deal with it. Put up with it. Suffer it. Uh, We don't do that. We don't suffer each other. We go home and we talk about it and we stew about it and we let it get in our craw and we get mad and we start avoiding those people. Deal with it. Suffer it bear up with one another. In other words, we just overlook each other's differences. And be glad that somebody's overlooking your stuff too. Comes with the humility. And then the second thing he says is forgiving grievances. When things actually happen out of people's brokenness, that brings harm. And the word forgiving means to extend grace to those who have hurt us. The literal use of the word, to cancel out debt. And the standard we're encouraged is to apply to each other Christ's own forgiveness of us. How much did Christ forgive us? Absolutely and completely. About everything? Yeah, about everything. So important for us to have the communion of saints that first of all, we just live in forbearance of one another. It's a blessing to overlook a transgression. Let stuff go. And then when we're harmed, Be quick to extend forgiveness in the same way that God has forgiven us. So here's this community that is seeking to live in community by changing our attitudes towards people, walking in relationship with people in humility and compassion, and just walking together into transformation. I love that picture, and the attitudes are so critical, and love is the glue, holds it all together. If we get that right, it's why we can put up with each other. Suffer each other. And then offer forgiveness because we know there is nothing that anyone can do to me that Christ hasn't been willing to forgive and that he has not forgiven in me. And therefore, I forgive one another. And if we're able to get there, then we become this community that can fulfill three different priorities that Paul talks about. Just gonna list them. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the glory of Christ. Ultimately, as his bride, the role of the church and the result of the communion of saints is that Christ is honored and glorified. Christ is in all and through all and above all. Let's look at them. The peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body, you are called to peace. The peace of Christ is the gospel. 
We're a gospel community. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God. And since all of us are at peace with God, we are to extend that same grace to one another and be peacemakers. The key word is rule. Let peace rule. You know what that Greek word means? It means to act as umpire. So when we're having conflict with one another, when we're trying to decide how we deal with our conflict, peace gets to make the call. You and I don't get to make the call. The rule of peace in the gospel is the umpire for our conflict. It rules in our community. Let the peace of Christ rule. The second is the word of Christ, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach, admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. The word of Christ, to be a true people of God who are in communion with one another. We need to be in the word of God. Better yet, it needs to be in us. It needs to dwell in us. I want you to quickly note the connection between letting the word of God dwell in our lives and worship. Listen to what he says again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Well, that makes sense. We're in the word. We're growing. We're learning. We're teaching each other. We're encouraging each other to grow. But it's more than just growth and transformation. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this is a definite biblical concept. That godly worship, true worship, is intricately connected to an intense relationship with the Word of God. True worship of God always flows out of the revelation of God through Scripture. There are those that think of worship as its own revelatory experience, and they seek the mystical experience with God, but Scripture says, no, God's revealed Himself through His Word. Scripture is the theme and the text for worship, and it's responding to the God who reveals Himself in Scripture in a way that produces joy and glory to Him. That is real worship. There is no such thing as worship that is purely experiential and revelatory. It always grows out of the Word of God. And the opposite is true also. There is no such thing as just good, doctrinally driven churches who have no passion. A church that just says, we're a people of the book, who never weeps before God and dances in joy and worships Him passionately, does not understand how the Word of God works. Because the word of God drives us into praise if we're really letting it dwell in us. And that's why the third becomes true. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that's the glory of Christ. The key word there is do. Every word, every response is for God. And again, all of this is what we're meant to do together. None of this teaching is for you individually. You can't do it on your own. We were meant to live this life together. Not only do I belong to you and you belong to me as we belong to Christ, not only do we belong to each other, we desperately need each other in order to be this kind of a people and these kind of saints. That's the communion 
of the saints. As we, as we bring it down today, I'm just wondering if you can think about a brother or sister in Christ that you know you need to put on some compassion and humility about. That you need to maybe go home and make a phone call and connect. If they live in the area, maybe grab a cup of coffee just to minister grace, to make peace so that you do not get in the way of the communion of the saints. Ephesians 4, Paul puts it this way. Let's say this as we close. Say it with me. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How are you doing with that? Make every effort. The Greek word for make every effort doesn't just mean effort. It means timeliness, urgency. This is where the creed hits the road in our lives. We need to make every effort to keep this unity so that ultimately Christ is seen and honored in who we are.